welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet Pod. My name is Dominic Chicatano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. Today's episode is another installment of a new oral history project and podcast series entitled The General Counsel's Opinions, Conversations with the Attorneys Who Have Led EPA's Office of General Counsel. As the Environmental Protection Agency prepares to celebrate its 50th anniversary in December 2020, this series will document the history of the OGC through conversations with the 12 general counsels who have led the office. ELI would like to thank Alston and Bird for supporting the General Counsel's Opinion series. Today, I'm here with Kevin Minoli, a current Alston and Bird partner who was an attorney in EPA's OGC for 18 years before joining his firm. From January 2017 to January 2018, Kevin had the opportunity to lead the OGC as EPA's acting general counsel. During that time, Kevin says he would often look at the list of general counsels on the EPA's website and wonder what the time leading the office was like for each of them. The General Counsel's Opinions podcast series is a chance for Kevin and all of our listeners to hear firsthand accounts of these experiences. Kevin will be joining us throughout the series, each time for a conversation with the former EPA General Counsel. On today's episode, Kevin speaks with Scott Fulton, who served as General Counsel from August 2009 to January 2013. Scott is president of the Environmental Law Institute. Previously, he was a partner at Beverage and Diamond PC and served in a number of top governmental leadership positions in addition to his time as general counsel. He teaches international environmental governance as an adjunct professor at George Washington School of Law, is a fellow of the American College of Environmental Lawyers, and a member of the UN Environment's International Advisory Committee on Environmental Justice. Thank you to Kevin and Scott for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Scott, thanks for uh, joining us. We're in the ELI facilities here, but thank you for coming in just the same. The sure thing. Kevin, always good to see you. Good to see you as well. In these conversations, we are trying to give people a little insight into what it's like to be the general counsel of EPA. And you're one of only 12 people who've held that title since the office was made into an independent office. Each one of you got to the position from a different way in a different way. And so we like to start by asking, what, uh, what led you to becoming the general counsel of EPA? Um, I would say it was, a, it was a, a long progression that really began with a, a tenure as the a, as a deputy general counsel or the princip, principal deputy general counsel during the Clinton administration um, that um, uh, equipped me to later come back to that uh, function of the agency, having done a number of other things in the uh, in the interim, um, but uh, that that experience uh, helped me understand the the basic function and nature of the work of that office, and uh, gave me the confidence that I could do the job at the later point in time at which the invitation to do the job would come. Now I was a I was a careerist. Um, in the in the federal government, uh, in jobs uh, between the Justice Department and EPA for uh, 26 years before uh, the invitation to take a political appointment emerged, and for me, 
uh, that happened at the beginning of the Obama administration. I um, I didn't know at the time um, that uh, I would be asked to be the general counsel of the agency. I was first asked to be the acting deputy administrator of the agency. Um, and this, I think, was a, a function of uh, some relationships from the Clinton administration that carried forward into the Obama administration. Um, uh, this is something I was more than happy to do, um, and it was through the course of serving as the acting deputy administrator that um, I, of course, got to know the administrator well, Lisa Jackson, and um, uh, she was not an administrator who came to town with a lawyer in tow. Um, and uh, as part of my work as the acting deputy, I was trying to find her a general counsel. And um, the White House, uh, at the beginning of an administration, um, has a running list of ideas that they want uh, agency and department principals to consider. So we were getting a stream of suggestions from White House personnel. And uh, Lisa Jackson um, uh, was... Uh, not drawn uh, to any of them in particular. Uh, so at one point in the process, she looked at me and said, well, why don't you do it? Would you be willing to, to take this job and convert to a political position? And, um, and uh, I, at that point, had already made the calculation in my own mind that I would do anything I was asked to do um, by the Obama administration because I was strongly committed to the success of his presidency. Um, so it really wasn't a difficult question for me to ask, uh, and nor was it a question that um, um, was uh, challenging from a professional standpoint. Uh, at an earlier point in time, um, the, uh, the guarantee that flows with a political appointment of uh, ultimately leaving government would have been challenging for me um, because I was interested in retiring from the government at some point. Uh, but when this invitation came, I was at 26 years, and um, uh, uh, so I, I knew by the end of the first term I'd hit the 30-year mark and I could retire. So I told the Obama folks that uh, I was willing to do it, uh, but they should understand that I would be a um, one-term general counsel, and they said, not to worry. If you last that long, you will have outlasted every general counsel who's ever had the job. So uh, it was on those terms that we proceeded. Right. Uh, only to be uh, bested by yeah. Avi. <clears throat> Avi just uh, one person later by, I think, about seven days or so. Yes, had uh, I known that Avi, Avi was going to do that, I would have extended my retirement date by another month and foreclosed that option altogether. Um, you know, your transition through your career, uh, you, you were the one person that I think that rose to the job having been at EPA for most of their career, sometime at DOJ, but for, for the long, most recent history before that uh, at EPA. How was the transition for you from career to political appointee? And what was that like? And did you think that it was more or less challenging because you had been a, a career person at the agency? Or was it what you would imagine it would have been had you come in from the outside? Um, I would say it was challenging um, in different ways than I expected, probably. I mean, I, I thought uh, that because I'd been operating at the senior career level um, 
for so so many years and had seen the political process from that vantage point and had acted um, in political positions for fairly extended periods of time that I knew what the game was. Um, and uh, what I discovered was that it was more involved and there were elements to it that really were out of view uh, to some degree, uh, even for senior career people um, that were material and meaningful. And uh, in particular, the relationships with the White House and uh, the Office of White House Counsel, uh, relationships with the Office of Management and Budget, um, the, the arm wrestling that goes on between agencies and departments at the, at the uh, PAS level. A lot of that is uh, um, probably mercifully <laughs> out of view for the careerist. Um, uh, but there's some, some art and craft uh, to being successful in the political ranks. That's, it's a little bit different. Um, than the experience in the in the career ranks. It's certainly not beyond the means of career folks to do, um, but it is a little different. And that was you know my experience as well throughout the acting period that there were always going to be conversations that needed to happen amongst the the political team, and and that were more appropriate to be at that at that political level, even if I might have held the title acting general counsel. It was a different understanding about the limitations of that role, even as you sat in the chair of the, of the general council. Yeah. It means, it does mean something to be one of the president's people. Um, it, um, it, uh, it, it draws you into a series of exchanges that, uh, you would just not be privy to even, even in circumstances where you've got kind of, um, optimum openness, between the career and political ranks, there's still um, there is a line of separation there that uh, that needs to be understood and, and appreciated. And that's you know that reflects on sort of how it changed, sort of managing up or looking upward. Did you see a similar change to looking at the staff of the career folks that uh, did that relationship change or become more challenging or, or not? for you when you became a political appointee as opposed to senior acting official? I would say not so much for me. Um, uh, and this is partly because by the time I became a, a, a PAS, uh, president, presidentially appointed Senate confirmed appointee, um, I had been a fairly senior manager of people and organizations for over 20 years. Uh, and um, so the, 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 I did not see a big difference in the leadership quotient um, uh, in managing as a senior career leader and managing as a, as a uh, political appointee. I did not feel the need to kind of shift or change my management style or orientation. Um, I, I felt like the the basic leadership uh, principles that I had tried to adhere to along the way were just as relevant and moving the organization in response to the, um, to the uh, policy agenda of the administration I was serving were, were equally valid. And so, no, I didn't, uh, I didn't experience a significant change in that regard.
You referenced a couple of times PAS uh, appointees, the presidentially appointed Senate confirmed appointees. Just for folks who may not be uh, steeped in in sort of uh, how EPA is set up and how those positions, you know, how many of them are, there are. There are about, I think, 10 or so uh, PAS, presidentially appointed Senate confirmed positions at EPA, the administrator, the deputy, the assistant administrator for the major offices, the inspector general. But that's it. And then there's about probably 60 or so more political appointees that don't require the same level of, of appointment or Senate confirmation. So PAS officials, which the general counsel is one, is is among the top at the agency, certainly in terms of seniority and its relationship with the White House because of that. And I'd say also uh, authority. I mean, for, for, for people on the outside of government, um, kind of understanding that hierarchy is not easy but there is um it's unquestionable that the pas appointees in washington dc um uh, are superior officials in terms of authority uh to the non-pas uh appointees uh, that are scattered around uh, the agencies and departments in epa's case for example the the regional administrators who uh, are quite authoritative within their region but when it comes to matters of national interest, national policy. Um, there really isn't any question what the hierarchy is. It's really the PAS folks who are uh, really, in a sense, only one step removed from the president that uh, uh, have that authority. It was always uh, my sense, and I think that of others, that the, the Senate confirmation gave a political appointee a little more gravitas, a little more independence or ability to step up and, and stand up for something that might be different from what the administrator prefers, uh, all within the understanding that everyone works for the president in that line. Did you feel that, uh, is that was that sense that, that we had in the career ranks, is that an accurate sense in, from your perspective? Yeah, no, I, no, I think that is an accurate sense. And I think the dynamics within the, um, the political leadership of an administration um, reflect uh, that. Um, but it's not all gravitas. There's also um, um, some some hazards that flow with it. There are commitments that um, that you're asked to make uh, as part of the confirmation process. Things that uh, you're uh, encouraged to look into, and that sort of thing. And uh, the, uh, the 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 confirmation committee, whoever that might be, Environment and Public Works for purposes of uh, EPA and the Senate side. Um, you know, they, uh, they view that um, as uh, a meaningful accountability check so that if you don't follow thing, through on things you said you're going to do in the confirmation process, they can hold you to account for that. Um, and, of course, there's also the, the assurance that um, if things go sideways or south in some way for, the, for an administration, that the uh, that they're going to want to talk to the PAS <laughs> officials, the ones that they confirmed and see as accountable to the oversight machinery. So the the uh, the opportunity to appear before Congress and congressional hearings and the like is uh, uh, increases with uh, with PAS status. I do remember well the day that you called my office and, and offered me the opportunity to manage oversight uh, for EPA and uh, thought it was uh, 
a poor choice of words, <laughs> knowing what I was about to get myself into. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm sure uh, I sugarcoated it. But I'm glad you did it. Uh, I'm glad I did too. I learned a lot and, and built a lot of good relationships that way. Um, did you have fun in the job? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, you know, I'd say, um, and, and part of this is the uh, a function of that of the the headiness at the front end of. Uh, one of these political appointments, but uh, the the first couple of years, as uh, first as acting deputy administrator and and then as general counsel, which kind of um, they merge in some ways in my circumstance because my involvement initially as as acting deputy administrator also influenced my presence uh, within the Obama administration EPA. I mean, I. Um, uh, in some ways I had some special status as a result of that role that kind of carried through the entire tenure that I had there. But just to give you, uh, give you, uh, some examples of the kind of headiness part, part of the equation, there definitely were opportunities that emerged that, uh, had never been available to me before, um, to go to the White House and do cool White Housey things and um, spend time in the Situation Room with the President and the Vice President. And um, really, any time, any day with the President is a good day for any of these jobs. Um, at least, uh, I was never in a circumstance where I was in trouble with the President, <laughs> thankfully. I'm sure those are not fun days, but, uh, um, but I remember... Um, uh, when I was acting deputy administrator, um, Angela Merkel came to town to give a, a, an address to the Joint Chambers of Congress. And so the call went out for the cabinet to appear. Um, Lisa Jackson was out of town. Um, I was, uh, I was the, the, the acting deputy administrator, so I was the, the EPA cabinet member for purposes of this event. So um, I was uh, part of the kind of... Uh, gathering of cabinet officials as i recall there really were only about half the crowd were legitimate um <laughs> cabinet level appointees the rest of us were subs um but when it came time for the address to be given um the the great doors of the of the house of representatives open and uh the, the the clerk of the of the house uh, announces and now presenting the president's cabinet and and we marched and with all of the members of Congress sort of glad handing us from on either side of the aisle, and we sat there in that little box, uh, basically where I think the Supreme Court sits during the State of the Union address. Um, well, is that right? No, I think as we were sitting where the cabinet sits. I think the Supreme Court also came to that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had our, our moment with, uh, with Angela Merkel as part of the president's cabinet. So that was, that was fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there were other things that, uh, just sort of quirky, interesting things like, uh, so one point the Lisa Jackson as a team building event had, uh, all of her political team go to the, the bowling alley in the white house and we went bowling and, uh, it was fun too. I mean, these are just things that, uh, both the American people never get a chance to witness, much less participate in and, um, uh, they were uh, they were available to me at that time. What do you would you say was your best day if you look back? 
Um, maybe the one that I just mentioned, <laughs> the, the sort of White House, uh, all fun, no burden <laughs> experiences. Um, uh, from a programmatic standpoint, a good day for me was when we finished the work on um, environmental justice legal tools, uh, which... Uh, I had always seen as a piece of unfinished business for the agency, uh, had always been frustrated by our difficulty in making progress on that. So I'd kind of taken that on as a as one of my um, agenda items as general counsel and uh, uh, and was pleased with how that came out. Uh, was also pleased that the administrator who was strongly committed to the idea of environmental justice saw it as an such an important contribution. Um, uh, remains to be seen how well actualized um, uh, those ideas are or, or can yet become, um, but uh, it was a good moment for OGC, um, some of the best of what that organization can do from my vantage point. How much did you have the uh, ability to identify priorities like that that you wanted to pursue as a general counsel obviously wanting to get the buy-in of the of the administrator but uh you know lawyers we represent clients and we represent them on the issues that they care most about but did you find that you had the ability to say this is something that i care a lot about that i'd like to make a difference on and make that happen um yeah this is one of the areas where the my functionality is the as a deputy administrator and my role as general counsel kind of uh, blended a bit. I probably, um, at least at the front end of the administration, had a little bit more self-determination ability than, um, than the typical general counsel might, partly because I was carrying things over from these other jobs. And there also was a time before the Michelle DePass, the, the international affairs uh, head, uh, uh, was confirmed where I was also doing that job. So the, for the first six months or seven months of the, of the administration, I think I was the acting deputy administrator, the acting general counsel, and the acting head of the international affairs office. So um, when I started more purely doing the general counsel's job, there were some carryover things from those earlier functions that uh, still informed and influenced what I did. And some of them stayed with me. Like I, I never stopped doing the work in China, um, thankfully, um, because you know, that's work I'm still doing now here at, uh, at the Environmental Law Institute. Uh, but you know, I remember uh, when I first came into OGC, um, my interest was in trying to, to fix broken things and uh, get things that weren't working well, working better, um, to solve some intractable problems. And some of those problems uh, we went on to do some things with, um, some of them uh, relatively well, probably some of them uh, as they ultimately unfolded less well. So I remember, for example, talking about the, the problem of jurisdictional waters under the Clean Water Act and my goal that, um, that uh, the Obama administration can make a contribution in, in clarifying the reach of the Clean Water Act. And uh, you know, the Waters of the United States rule was ultimately born of that process. I wasn't there when it came out. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's had some challenges, needless to say, in terms of its durability. 
Um, but I still think this is the this is the right point of focus for uh, in terms of leadership at EPA uh, to solve the the unsolvable or difficult problems. I mean that's why that's why people are in these positions. None of it is easy. Um, but if uh, if if the leaders in Washington D.C. aren't willing to are able to take on the big problems of the day, then they're they're really not leading the country. So. You know, I, I, I wanted to be responsive to the problems. Climate change, of course, is another one. And um, that was a huge investment of time and energy to try to figure out what the, what the right response was on the other side of failed efforts to legislate in this space and what was the reach of the Clean Air Act and mechanically how could that really work in the climate space. And those were tough, tough questions. Um, and ultimately, I'm, um, I'm happy with the, the contributions that we were able to make on that front. Do you see the big intractable challenges being solvable? Uh, taking Wars of the U.S., for example, with the future of every rule being able to be challenged in the district court, uh, which, you know, is judges all across the country and the likelihood of one at least having uh, setting that one aside every time that there's a new rule. Is there a solution with what we have for tools today, or is it something that if we're going to solve it, it might need uh, a different statutory provision or approach to get to a different place? Well, we probably won't know for sure until the, the, the Supreme Court gets another shot or two at some of this and helps clarify the mess they made of things with Swank and Rapanos. I mean, the part of the problem that we have is... Uh, uh, a, a fairly unsuccessful um, uh, venture into the jurisdictional question by the Supreme Court, which kind of left things confusing and, and deeply problematic, not just for regulators, but also for the regulated community. So I think there's a small chance that if the, some of this gets back to the court, we might get a clearer picture uh, and hopefully, hopefully one informed by modern understanding of uh, how ecosystems function and how water systems function so that we're um, that we, so that we're, we're with with both eyes open seeing what we're doing and not doing in terms of effectuating these statutes in terms of how we see their jurisdictional reach um, ideally um, uh, we would be modernizing our legislative uh, legal infrastructure um, to align with these modern understandings. Um, we would be dealing seriously with the fact that not only is the federal government's authority um, constrained at this point in dealing with, uh, uh, with freshwater resources in this country, but half the states in the union have, uh, have decided to, to constrain their authority uh, to the same space. Um, so um, uh, there's a there's a theoretical notion that uh, what the federal government uh, can't get to the states will, um, but the, there's also a practical um, dimension that says well the states are choosing not to, and so therefore no one's really doing it. And um, the fact that we've plateaued in achieving our our water quality goals in this country should not surprise us. And the only way to, to actually get to the place of fishable, swimmable 
waters across the board, which was the goal of the Clean Water Act, is to re-envision um, our legal tools in keeping with how ecosystems actually work and function, something we didn't know quite so clearly 50 years ago, but we know very well now. So looking backwards again, um, is there something that stands out that you might have done differently or you wished had gone differently or uh, a day that was particularly challenging <laughs> when you look back? Um, I hope I'll, I'll cite the decision correctly, but I think it was UARG versus EPA was the challenge, the so-called tailoring rule under the PSD program. Um, and this was sort of a bad day, good day. It started off as a bad day because the Supreme Court invalidated a significant portion of this rule that we had uh, labored over extensively. And uh, it had embedded in it um, a really perplexing legal question, was, which was how to do, deal with the quantitative thresholds for regulation for um, for PSD um, pollutants um, that are set out in that section of the Clean Air Act, uh, which are you know described as 100 tons or in some cases 50 tons, as I recall. Uh, but when you're dealing with uh, carbon dioxide, um, these numbers are <laughs> are hard to work with because uh, 100 tons of CO2 might be generated by um, a donut shop. Um, uh, so there was a need to, <laughs> to figure out a path through that uh, that allowed for CO2 to be seen differently and not subjected to those uh, thresholds. Um, we, we struggled our way through that, thought we had a, uh, uh, an articulable, incredible path for reconciling all that. It was brought to the Supreme Court. Uh, Supreme Court um, uh, basically uh, on the strength of, uh, of a legal conclusion that we had thought not possible, um, concluded that you could actually have a contextual reading of the Clean Air Act that would allow you to, um, to regard what is a pollutant in one section of the act for meaning something different from what is a pollutant, same term, in another section of the act. Um, I would say that had we known um, that such a contextual um, uh, approach would fly with the court, we undoubtedly would have, would have pursued it. So I really wasn't that distressed by the court's analysis. It was it was more distressing that we had to start over again for uh, a not insignificant uh, part of the rule. But uh, uh, the the initial uh, initially our chins hit the floor because it it uh, we thought it was a, a difficult outcome. It really wasn't until we understood it better that we realized that the core of what we were trying to achieve is actually preserved by the ruling and um, and the 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 other piece was the one that we had been struggling with and they had now said there was an answer for we didn't know existed <laughs> uh, it'd be interesting to know if you could rewind time whether the supreme court would have adopted that theory had it come from epa <laughs> yeah, exactly or within our idea just was gone their for idea it. it's okay <laughs> who uh, can say right well, um, I mean, our, our the antagonists in the equation would have no doubt argued against it. So um, it would have, uh, it, it might have been seen, seen differently by the court just because the advocacy would have shaped up differently around it. 
so we've done a lot of, of reminiscing and looking back and the last couple of questions I have look towards the future. Um, you know, at some point in the future, there will be a 13th person to serve in the role and, and be tapped to lead the Office of General Counsel as a general counsel. What advice would you give to him or her as she or he gets ready for the job? Uh, maybe two bits of advice. Um, one is um, appreciate uh, both the reach and and the limits and the importance of the of the position that I, in my experience, and uh, this includes being on the outside of OGC and at times being in conflict with the, the Office of General Counsel uh, as a client or kind of as a competitor entity, either at the Justice Department or in the Office of Enforcement and Compliance and Assurance. And also just observing um, relationships between uh, the the OGC staff offices and the client offices is what seemed to work and didn't work. Um, uh, what worked best uh, is when OGC operated uh, within the lane that's, uh, that's uh, prescribed for it, which is uh, uh, being the voice of, um, uh, of, for legal interpretation, uh, legal direction for the agency, um, and being very, very clear um, when the advice that we were rendering was in the nature of policy advice as opposed to being about legal risk. And where uh, OGC uh, at times has had difficulty in the past with other organizations or where OGC staff has had trouble with clients is when um, that articulation becomes fuzzy um, and when clients get the sense of what they're really getting is policy advice that's dressed up as legal risk because the OGC lawyer likes the policy outcome better. Um, that is, uh, that's a, a trap, a snare that can be avoided. It actually can be fairly easily avoided just by careful labeling. Um, right now I'm talking to you about legal risk. Uh, I do have some views about the policy dimensions of this that I'd like to share as well. They're not about legal risk, uh, but they may be about reputation and other things that, uh, that are, are worth noting that I see. And I share them with you because I see them um, and feel like it would be a service to do that. Um, the other thing is um, um, to take advantage of the assets that are available to you. Um, the, the Office of General Counsel at EPA, uh, in my view, um, is one of the strongest um, uh, legal teams in the federal government. Um, its strength is partly uh, presented by the fact that people care about the issues that they're working on, um, uh, but it also has a fabulous reputation, has the ability to draw people from the the very best uh, schools, um, and uh, um, and uh, in my experience, um, EPA, OGC, and some of the elements at the Department of Justice are the are the best places, uh, the places where you find the best lawyers, and um, and it is, in my view, a profound mistake um, to not avail oneself uh, fully of the capacity that's presented by that. Um, and to, to uh, separate uh, oneself um, from, that, uh, uh, from that capacity. It greatly limits your ability to get the work done. Um, uh, for the most part, even though people care about the work, 
Um, they care more about being good lawyers um, and also understand as careerists that they're there to implement or effectuate the, the agenda of the democratically elected uh, presiding administration. They're not to be feared. Um, they're able to, to help you get your job done. And uh, the folks who do well in the job and perform the job the way that it should be performed are ones that appreciate that. I always would say that uh, when I needed to know something about a Supreme Court case, any major environmental Supreme Court case, I didn't need to call anybody. I just needed to walk down the hall. And that amount of talent and experience just does not exist anywhere else. And so I, I, I would agree that the best resource. Except at your law firm, I'm sure. Uh, my law firm is, is a close <laughs> second, uh, for sure. Uh, but uh, it's no, different, it's, though. It is. It's different. You've got uh, you've got the premier experts in the land on pretty much every subject on uh, EPA's books at your ready disposal, and uh, um, that's that's something that uh, that you and I and others who've been in that position will always miss. Yes. Ultimately, it, it's, it's, it's really not replicable anywhere else. That's correct. Um, for our last question, uh, we're doing this podcast series as part of the lead up to EPA's 50th anniversary, which will be in December of 2020. When you look forward at the next 50 years in front of EPA, uh, what do you see? Uh, well, for me, it's an interesting question because we're just coming off the this is the 50th anniversary of, uh, of ELI. Uh, I guess technically our birthday is December 22nd of, uh, of this year. Uh, but our entire year of programming has been um, both looking at the past, but also um, trying to figure out how to build on the past to secure the future. So the last, uh, last two days, I was out at uh, Airlie House in uh, Virginia for a program with GW Law and ELI called um, Reimagining Environmental Law that uh, was trying to contend with uh, where we need to go, what is the unfinished work um, uh, relative to environment and how do we get there. And as you might imagine, um, um, to have a successful conversation like that, you you almost have to look beyond uh, current political dynamics otherwise you you end up so constrained by what is practically deliverable that the the big ideas can uh, elude you um, on the other hand if you liberate yourself to think about the big ideas um, then <laughs> you may end up with an altogether impractical agenda um, so we're uh, we're going to be sifting and sorting that and um, trying to articulate some notions around it that we we hope can be helpful and in the ELI tradition, uh, apolitical. Um, but maybe just to foreshadow a couple of things that came up in that conference that I think um, will be important for um, for. EPA as the as the country's environmental leader to contend with is uh, um, what to whether there's a, a different path to travel on ecosystem protection um, and uh, degradation avoidance and uh, an interesting idea that uh, that we discussed there that I think we'll we'll end up trying to give some framing to is the notion of building on the uh, no net loss objective that uh, we've had for wetlands, uh, 
the, since around 1990, I think, in the George Bush senior administration, and frame that up in the ecosystems context, where, where we try to articulate and make real a, a node net loss and ecosystem function notion um, that will um, enliven our sense of how we should be thinking about uh, uh, land uses, um, um, uh, upstream, downstream responsibilities, um, um, and uh, uh, fill out kind of a more holistic approach um, to, um, to protection schemes that are really aimed at making sure that we don't suffer further reductions in the capacity of natural systems, which is a, a big issue, a big problem right now. We'll probably find ourselves talking about, uh, you know, the pursuit of a lower carbon society and um, how to think about procedural statutes uh, like uh, NEPA and the Endangered Species Act that uh, that have contributed greatly to environmental quality in this country, but uh, are surfacing as barriers of sorts to uh, rapid build out of, uh, of solar and wind energy. How, how should we be thinking about that as environmental lawyers and um, the, the national leadership on the environment at, uh, at EPA will need to have a voice on those questions as well. Uh, we talked a lot about the, the private sector and um, sustainability commitments in the private sector and what we call private environmental governance as a kind of a parallel um, uh, opportunity for impact and influence and how that can be uh, optimized and how that should influence the, the governmental role or how government can uh, help catalyze that so it can be everything that it might be. We also talked about environmental big data um, and this will be hugely impactful for the agency in terms of uh, how to relate to a world where we're going to have uh, much uh, more granular and real-time information about environmental conditions of every sort and form um, in a way that will outpace um, the traditional government intervention strategies and communication strategies. And it'll be a real challenge for EPA not to be flat-footed in the, in the machine era um, in response to this kind of information. Um, so uh, what we really need from, from uh, the EPA of the future, the Office of General Counsel as an important part of that architecture, uh, is the capacity to think the big thoughts about where we go, where we go from here, and to help lead the country in the direction of those thoughts. And hopefully, that leadership is more than just saying, "Well, this tool or that tool can't be used to this effect." Um, if we think it's an important issue, then we ought to be saying what the what the tools are that should be brought forward to deal with these questions. Not, you know, we just can't do anything about it. That's that's not what I've understood to be the Environmental Protection Agency. And my hope is that the, that, uh, that the leaders of the agency now and in the future will, will see their role um, in that way. Well, Scott, thank you. It's been uh, my pleasure to get caught back up with you and, and hear some of your thoughts about the past, but also about the future. I want to say happy anniversary uh, for your 50th anniversary at ELI. And thank you for the support for this, this podcast series. And uh, the team that you have here at ELI who's made that possible. So thanks for talking with us today. Sure, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. 
Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.